Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about the ways in which law enforcement, in particular the RCMP here in Canada, is keeping an eye on people that they are investigating. Remember we were talking about spyware and the use of that by the RCMP, and they're having to answer for that in front of a House of Commons committee this week, a rare summertime session of a House of Commons committee on that. And what did we learn? Well, yesterday we learned a senior Mountie said that the RCMP has deployed spyware to access the encrypted communications of targets as far back as 2002. That's Mark Flynn, the RCMP's assistant commissioner responsible for national security and protective policing. And he told MPs that between 2002 and 2015, the Mounties used Canadian-made technology in order to access electronic information covertly. What does all this mean? What is going on here? To help us break it down a little bit more, Brenda McPhail joins us now, the Director of Privacy, Technology and Surveillance Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Brenda, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Can you explain this a little bit to us here, Brenda? So what exactly have the RCMP admitted to? Well, the RCMP have admitted to secretly being able to remotely install a program on a suspect's phone that basically allows them to crack open the intimate details of that individual's life as they're contained not just on the phone, but also in any cloud storage services that the phone connects to. So this is everything from text messages and photos to listening in live on conversations to taking pictures by controlling the camera to doing something they call hot mic which means activating the microphone on the phone and just listening in to whoever happens to be near it at the time. Now, does that go beyond what we understood what was happening before? Well, it does. I mean, of course, we have always known that the police had the ability with a warrant to get a wiretap that would allow them to listen into a phone conversation. And we've known that they can get a warrant to install a camera in a room to surveil people in it. In, in both cases, if they have a targeted investigation and a serious suspect. But what we didn't know is that they could sort of take over the devices that we carry around and follow us from work to home, from bedroom to bathroom, um, and be sort of watching and listening all of the time right. in specific investigations. Did that alarm you when you heard that? It did. Of course, as somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about and learning about new ways of surveillance, we suspected that police would want to have access to this tool, but it's also really a nuclear option of surveillance. So the fact that Canadian police have been using it for the last 20 years in secret was a shock. So does that mean that they're, they're being open about it now? Does that mean things are changing? Do you foresee a time where they won't be allowed to do this? Well, that's certainly um, the call of 
many of us in civil society, including CCLA, uh, that not a, that there should not necessarily at the at this time be an outright ban, but there should be a moratorium on the use of this technology so that we can have the necessary public conversation, a democratic debate that says, are, are the use of these technologies in keeping with our values as Canadians? And, and if we decide that in narrow and very narrow cases they might be, which is, of course, what the police want to argue, then we need updated laws to ensure that this kind of backroom decision can't happen again to ensure that if police want to use very invasive, controversial technologies, that there has to be a public process where they essentially get public buy-in and where we make sure that there are the right safeguards in place to ensure that the use is lawful and as privacy protective as possible. So are there no rules right now on how and when the RCMP do use technology like this? Like how have they been able to do this? So we do have rules. We have um, old rules that were created before this kind of technology existed. Um, there are rules in the Criminal Code of Canada that, that mean they have to go get a warrant and convince a judge that they need this. Uh, but what we know from their own accountability reports is that in the last five years, only one warrant request has been denied. So they have been very successful at convincing a judge that they, would, that they should be allowed to do this. Um, what we don't have in our privacy laws um, is any requirement, solid requirement, for police to do something we call a privacy impact assessment, which is thinking about the impacts on the privacy and charter rights of Canadians, and then running it by the Privacy Commissioner of Canada. So there's an outside watchdog body who looks at it and says, yes, your interpretation of privacy law is correct, and in this situation, you have appropriately mitigated the risks that you're creating for individuals. We don't have that, and we really need it. So we don't think about what we've done until after we have done it, essentially. Well, the RCMP will argue, and did yesterday before the committee, um, that they think about it very carefully, uh, that they use it as a last resort, um, and that they have to justify every use. Um, at the same time, they said, we don't always do privacy impact assessments because, you know, of course, we've always been able to do wiretaps or, or video, and this is just another way to do it. And that leaves aside the fact that it's not a device that they install and control. It's our device that they're taking over um, where they get to do all of the different kinds of surveillance at once, not just on what's happening now, um, but everything that we've said or done connected to our phone going back to the history of the device. So in other words, they're trying to pretend that this isn't much more invasive than it really is. They have justifications for that. And we need to call them on it, and they need to be held accountable. Brenda, what about the argument that this is an investigative tool that allows them to kind of crack down on criminals, and if we make it too hard for them, they won't be able to do that? Well, this this idea that encryption has caused caused profound problems for investigations has basically let criminals go dark is an amazing PR success. Um, but when you really interrogate it closely, think about how we live. We are more exposed on social media, on our uh, just the, the basic kind of functionality of the applications on our devices, which track us and record information, than we have ever been at any time in history. And police have access to all of that information. We also know that they said 
first 10, then yesterday, 32 cases over the last five years use this technology, which means that out of the number of cases they actually investigate, it is a tiny fraction where they think they need to use this tool. Not using it in the name of privacy and human rights wouldn't severely impact public safety, but it would send a message that Canada doesn't support mercenary spyware companies that in other contexts are known to be profound abusers of human rights and favorite tools of authoritarian governments. Okay, so this is going to continue then. Do you have any hope that something might come out of this? I think the FE committee, the committee of parliament that's looking at this, is engaging very seriously with this topic uh, and have sincere a sincere goal of creating recommendations to prevent this kind of revelation of the use of a secretive and controversial tool coming out in the media rather than being known um, to the public before the fact to ever. They're, I think they're trying to come up with recommendations to prevent that from happening again. Whether or not those recommendations get picked up is a question for government and for the RCMP, but I would sincerely hope they take this process seriously. Brenda, thank you for your time on that this morning. Thanks so much for having me. Brenda McPhail is the Director of the Privacy Technology and Surveillance Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, talking about the hearing that's going on right now. It's a House of Commons committee that is hearing from the RCMP about how many times, how often, and what the rules are surrounding the spyware that they are using to access the communications of targets that are under investigation. But it's a pretty sweeping amount of software that allow them to, you know, take up a lot of information and what do they do with it is the big question there. I'd like to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. All right, Roger Silhal is with us this morning, and I can tell you what we're not going to be talking about. We are not going to talk about the fact that she's never seen the movie Grease. Instead, we're going to talk about essentially undercover bosses. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. When it comes to music, you and I have some differing opinions. Same thing when it comes to movies in the 80s. We just got to accept it. 80s. I still respect and appreciate 80s. You. That was 1978. 80s. Also, come on. It's a classic. It's a classic, Raji. <laughs> I want to tell you about this awesome story that I read about. And that is what Taco Bell is doing to help keep the boss a little bit humble and not just the boss, all levels of the corporate part of the company. They all have to work one week in the shoes of people who are on the front lines. So that is the people at Taco Bell who are taking orders, who are bagging orders, who are saying hello and greeting all the customers and dealing with all their customer service complaints too. I love this idea. This is great. This is kind of like a a version of Undercover Boss, except they're not just making the boss do it. They're making all the executives do it, which I think, how can you learn what's going on in your stores if you don't do something like this? It's brilliant. Yeah, totally. And it makes me think about those photo ops, you know, where you see presidents or members of the royal family, they find themselves in some mom, pa type restaurant or on the front lines of something. And it's just for a photo op, right? Like they do it for half an hour and put the smiles on their faces. But if you're doing this work for a whole week, right? Customer service, when you're normally used to just being behind a desk or in a board meeting, you really will get a sense of what the company is built on. So I love that. 
And also the thing is in this day and age, it is so hard to find customer service employees. It's super hard to retain them. And this would give those bosses a chance to like understand the business from the ground up. That would be such a great idea. I can I think of that for like just about any line of work. Be great if, you know, even the bosses here did this job for a little while just to see what it was actually like. I don't I can't think of any, you know, employee who wouldn't want their boss to try to do their job to understand it better, right? Yeah, and the fact that it's a whole week will be what makes a difference, I think. Because if you can get into someone else's shoes for just a day, yeah, you get That's a taste. That's not enough. Yeah, it's not but enough. it's not enough to understand like how challenging it is. And I did a lot of customer service when I was in high school and when I was in university to pay for university. And a lot of customer service and retail work. And boy, did I learn a ton. I almost think it's essential that everybody, no matter what you end up doing for your career, does that kind of work so that you do understand the just how it works for customers and how to design your uh, everyday practice around well, making sure they have what they need. Especially if you are the corporate executive who's in charge of quote unquote streamlining things, right? If you're if you think you can find a way to do things more efficiently or you're gonna suggest a way to cut a corner or or streamline things, guess what? You should be the one to try it out. You should be the one to get in the workplace and test it out to make sure it works before you send out that memo. Yeah. uh, You know, I hear a lot of people say that customer service has gone down the tubes recently, like in the last several years, and that the next gen that's coming up, they don't care about what you think about their customer service they're offering you when you go to buy a sweatshirt or pick up a burger or something like that. And I've also heard the opposite from people who are in startups. Uh, they learn, it's like an entrepreneurial mentality that you actually should get into everyone's shoes at the company and that you should also be talking to customers and users. Very true. All right. Thank you for that, Raji. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. FBI agents executed a search warrant at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago Resort and Home in Florida yesterday. That is actually according to the former president, confirmed by him, not by the FBI at this point. Still lots of questions about what's going on. So let's find out the latest. Reggie Cicchini joins us now, our Global News Washington correspondent. Hello, Reggie. Good morning. Your job never really disappoints, does it? Like Just when you think things are quieting down, that is not the case. This is like a throwback to, uh, you know, four years ending 2021. Uh, and, and what's remarkable about this to me is the fact that we only know about this because the former president thrust this into the public with uh, that statement that he put out yesterday, calling this an unannounced raid, when at the end of the day, the FBI, the DOJ very rarely come out and give advanced warning that they're coming to knock on someone's door. That is very true. OK, so what do we know about this so far? So we really know that this likely goes back to 2021 when the former president left the White House, brought a bunch of boxes, more than a dozen down to Mar-a-Lago, many of which likely consisted of top secret or confidential information that the president had not declassified. Uh, and that posed problems. They were supposed to be handed over to the National Archives. National Archives went to the Department of Justice. They asked for these boxes. There was some cooperation. Some of it was returned. But the Times and the Post have reported that in the last couple of months, federal agents went 
went back to Mar-a-Lago, more uh, boxes were found. Padlocks were put up on some doors in the private residence to ensure that the material was secured. So the best guesses here, according to Trump's son last night at least, is that this is linked to more documents to ensure that the former president has zero classified information in his possession. Well, isn't there like he shouldn't have any, though, should he? Like, is there not a process for this when someone leaves office? And that was put in place after the Nixon administration to ensure that the presidential uh, archives or the Presidential Records Act takes back all of the vital and pertinent information that may be classified from an administration. But the former president did not pay attention to that. He brought it with him. He faced, you know, uh, consequences and potential risk from that because it's a federal offense to move, conceal or destroy government documents. Okay, so there's no confirmation about this from the FBI at this point? FBI and DOJ have been completely quiet about this. The White House says that they were not given any kind of advanced warning, but it's important to remember here, this is not just kind of a willy-nilly uh, search. This would have been run up the rails at the Department of Justice and at the FBI to ensure that all T's were crossed and I's dotted, and a federal judge would have had to have shown or at least seen that there likely could be probable cause and possible evidence here to sign off on that search warrant. So there were a lot of I's that were on this. Right. We simply just don't know what they were looking for because the affidavit has not and might not be made public. And that's, I think that's a very important point there. This is not something that the FBI or the Department of Justice can just do on a whim because they felt like it. There's a process for this. They would have had to go before a judge. They would have had to go before a judge who would have had to say that, yes, you, you know, there is likely probable cause here. There could be uh, evidence. But I think what's also important to look at, Simi, is that, you know, some Republicans, uh, you know, whether it's the former president's family or, or sitting lawmakers, are trying to say that this is just another political gotcha moment for Democrats. The FBI is headed by Christopher Wray, who is a Republican that was appointed by former President Donald Trump to replace Jim Comey. So this is not a kind of partisan, uh, you know, political grab moment for either mm-hmm. of of these departments, they believe if something has gone wrong, if the president himself has put himself in a situation that requires investigation, that he did this on his own. Okay, so what has the reaction been like then, like in, in terms of this from the former president too? Well, that statement he put out, he said that this was a dark time in America, again, trying to say that this is people that are simply going after him for politics. His family echoed that. Republican lawmakers, whether it's Kevin McCarthy or Marco Rubio or Marjorie Taylor Greene, have all tried to say that this is simply just a rogue department of justice. You know, again, worth pointing out here, DOJ has been very clear in saying, A, nobody is above the law, but the Attorney General has also made it clear that he's not going to do things just because he wants to do things. He tries to stay away from the White House. He tries to not politicize things. And what's important here to look at is DOJ does not try to get involved in investigations if it's close to an election, usually within 90 days. Midterms are 91 days away, so the timing of this is also incredibly important. Mm -hmm, It really is. All right, thank you for explaining it to us, Reggie. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. 
Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Appreciate that. Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. So FBI agents yesterday evening executed a search warrant at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago Resort and Home in Florida. This is a former president and a search warrant from the FBI. This is an unprecedented situation. But we thought, well, has anything like this even happened? Maybe not in recent history, but is there any kind of historical aspect to this? What is the perspective here? So to help us out with that, we thought, let's talk to Professor Alan Lickman, an American political historian and author of The Case for Impeachment, and he joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. My great pleasure. Is it also true, Professor, that you correctly predicted every presidential election since the mid-1980s? That is correct. How do you do that? I have my own unique system. It says, forget the polls, forget the pundits, focus on the strength and performance of the party holding the White House. If they've governed well, They get another four years. If not, they're booted out. And my system to assess that is the 13 keys to the White House, which looks at things like incumbency, internal party fights, long and short term economy, foreign policy successes and failures, social unrest. And if six or more of the 13 keys go against the party holding the White House, they are predicted losers. And you can imagine when I predicted Donald Trump's victory against all of the contrary predictions in 2016, that did not make me very popular in 95-plus <laughs> Democratic Washington, D.C., where I teach at American University. Well, so you did actually predict that. That's amazing. What about back in 92? Did you predict Bill Clinton? Absolutely did. And by the way, you know, after I predicted Trump in 2016. And after the election, I got this note written on the Washington Post article where I made the prediction. It says, Professor, congrats, good call. And then in big Sharpie letters signed Donald J. Trump. Wow. Okay. Now that we've we've established your bona fides on this, okay, I can see that we are talking to the right person this morning. So when you see what was happening yesterday, can you put that into historical perspective for us, or is there any historical perspective? There is minimal historical perspective for this. Only one president ever was uh, charged with a misdemeanor. And that is back in the 1870s, Ulysses S. Grant was arrested for speeding in his horse-drawn carriage, you know, the former fiery general. 
he was arrested and then he was slapped with a $20 fine. That's it when it comes to presidents. And, of course, let's not forget that in Watergate, Richard Nixon, the president, was uh, cited as an unindicted co-conspirator and certainly could have been indicted for crime. There was also precedent for some, not presidents, but for some high government officials being charged with mishandling classified government documents. That includes uh, the late Sandy Berger, the national security advisor to Bill Clinton, and David Petraeus, the former director of the uh, Central Intelligence Agency and and a renowned general. So those are some precedents that could help explain that. And let me also make it clear to your audience. You know, Donald Trump has called this an assault, a raid, you know, a break-in. That's nonsense. This is a legally authorized search that occurs all the time, every day. Not for ex-presidents, of course. And it is authorized by a federal judge. It's not a raid. It's not a break-in. It's not an assault. And, of course, this is the M.O. of Donald Trump. Right. Blame everybody else. You know, bring these 15 boxes to Mar-a-Lago. Something no former president has ever done. But it's not my fault. Let, but let's talk about that, the whole idea of classified documents, because that is what this raid is supposed to be about. It, it is there's an established well, we precedent. That. Well, that's, we don't know that. Right. OK. But that's the insinuation that we have had. But tell me about the process of when a president leaves office, then what is the process like for you know presidential documentation and what happens yes. with that? Yes, there's the Presidential Records Act. It's way back in the 1970s. And under the Presidential Records Act, all presidential documents must be preserved and sent to the National Archives. Not only did Trump violate that by bringing these 15 boxes to Mar-a-Lago, but you, I don't know if you saw those pictures that were released yesterday of him tearing up do, uh, documents and trying to flush them down the toilet. You know, I have to say, maybe the ironic meme of the entire Trump administration would be the administration being flushed right down the crapper. That, that's exactly what he tried to do. Now, the Presidential Records Act does not carry criminal penalties, but there are other criminal acts, we saw some have been prosecuted for them, for mishandling classified information or for uh, destroying government documents. Right. So what are the potential repercussions then in a case like this, if it is about classified documents? Yeah, I'm not a lawyer, but as I said, there could be uh, clearly the potential for the violation of at least two criminal laws. And there is precedent for prosecuting high level of former government officials and current government officials for violating those laws. We have no idea whether that's the case, but I have to tell you, uh, the FBI, this department, would not lightly uh, seek and gain legally a search warrant for the home of a former president unless they really believe something very, very serious was going on. They're not going to tell you, of course, that, you know, that would be against uh, 
Justice Department guidelines. And certainly this raid was not politically motivated. This is not good news for President Biden. You know, he was riding this great high after passing this, you know, landmark tax and climate change bill. And uh, this kind of is a, a distraction that he doesn't want. Right. But, you know, in terms of previous presidencies, looking at presidential history, um, there's been a lot of contentious presidencies before, right? Like we tend to think of this as being, oh, there's been nothing like this before. But is there another time, another era you can think of that is comparable? Well, it'd have to be Watergate. You know, the president engaging in uh, cover-ups, intimidation, uh, uh, obstruction of justice. And Watergate was not just an illegal break-in. And, you know, they're trying to compare uh, this FBI search warrant raid to the break-in by Republican operatives and Democratic headquarters. There's no comparison. What is an illegal break-in by private individuals with no government authority to do it? And the other is a legal search, which occurs all the time. But certainly during Watergate, not only did you have this illegal break-in, but you had a whole series of illegal activities being orchestrated by the Nixon administration, taking in illegal cash contributions, breaking into the offices of the psychiatrist for Daniel Ellsberg, the guy who released uh, the Pentagon Papers, uh, engaging in campaigns of dirty tricks to corrupt and manipulate elections. Yeah. I'm just actually reading a new book about that, too. Uh, Very quickly, though, Professor, is it too early for your 2024 prediction? I have not made a prediction, but, you know, I love you guys in the media, but the problem (laughs) is you guys have to do a story every day. (laughs) Yeah, we do. The keys don't change a lot. But, you know, where the media has gone so far off base is to say, oh, my God, you got this old, feeble Biden. He shouldn't run again. Remember my keys to the White House. One of my keys is incumbency. Biden doesn't run. The Democrats lose the incumbency. Biden doesn't run. They lose the second key, the internal party fight key. Hmm. You don't want to start a campaign two keys down because it only takes six keys for you to lose. Well, we're going to have to check back in with you then when we get closer to it. Listen, thank you for your time this morning. My pleasure. Take care, Cindy. You too. That's Professor Alan Lichtman, who's an American political historian and author of The Case for Impeachment. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. Well, they're in the process, supposedly, of removing the tents along Hastings Street, what has become known as the Tent City. It's more than just, you know, people looking for some place to stay. It's become a health concern. It has become a safety concern. Vancouver's fire chief saying that these tents need to be taken down because she believes it is a fire and safety hazard. So that process is ongoing. Now, there are other, you know, aspects of the story as well. And yes, uh, how they look is a part of that. This has come up because there have been some stories about uh, people, you know, tourists, uh, like raiding essentially these neighborhoods on these tourist sites and not giving Vancouver a very good review uh, because of what is being seen down there. Is it actually driving tourists away? Are they commenting on this? 
and how do tourism officials feel about this? Well, joining us now to talk about that is Royce Twin, who's the president and CEO of Destination Vancouver. Royce, thank you for being here. Good morning, Cindy. Has this been coming up, Royce, in your discussions with other people in the tourist industry? Most certainly. Uh, basically, when I got here uh, in July of 2020, this has been an ongoing discussion. Okay. In what way? What are the concerns? I think you've illustrated them, and that is the perception of our city, the reality of the city. We are empathetic and realize that, that uh, there is a real challenge with what's happening in the downtown east side and other areas. There's another side of this business uh, for us specifically, and that is the ravages of the pandemic for this industry. It's a $5 billion industry that supports 100,000 plus jobs for Vancouver, and that's been our focus uh, over the last uh, couple of years to try to get this industry back on its legs. And is this hampering that effort? It will hamper the effort. Most certainly the reviews, sadly, are nothing new. You can go back on TripAdvisor to 2012 and you will see top reviews of the downtown east side. So this is a, a challenge for us, for the community, for quite some time that doesn't seem to have any easy solve. So what is, if that's been the case then, if there have always been these kinds of reviews for 10 years, are, are there more of them now? Like what has changed then in the last couple of years? I can't comment as to whether there are more of them or what's changed specifically. Everybody has a perception of what they see. So uh, what we're hearing from operators, uh, specifically down in Gastown and Chinatown, that it has gotten worse, that it seems to be uh, not getting better, that there are more challenges in trying to do business and trying to just conduct their lives. And for the residents that are living down there, it seems to be getting worse for them as well. So is this something, Royce, that um, Destination Vancouver or other tourism officials have discussed uh, with people at the City of Vancouver? Uh, Most certainly with the City of Vancouver, they absolutely know. We've also had conversations, many conversations with the BIAs and looked at a variety of different programs, whether or not it's garbage removal, whether graffiti removal, other kinds of things that we can actually take action and do to try to present uh, a good view of the city for not just visitors, but for the community as well. Okay, so then what what would you like to see happen? Like, what would be your advice to the city at this point? Uh, That's a great question, and I wish I had great advice. Uh, I don't know what the advice is, Simi. I really don't. My expertise is not around policy of health care around SROs, around policing. I don't know what the solution is, Mm -hmm. Uh, but certainly... What has been happening, the investments that have been going down to the downtown inside of those areas, uh, hasn't been working. And the questions that I get from industry is we put a lot of money into into these places to help people, to try to make it better. It doesn't seem to be working. Why is it not working? I don't have that answer. So, okay, so then from your perspective, like, how do you, how do you market the city then? Or how, like, every, every city I would imagine has these issues, right? Like, I've gone to San Francisco and seen this problem. I've gone to New York City and seen this problem. So do you try to uh, ignore that part of the message? Do you try to focus on other issues? Like, how do you market the city then? It's, it certainly has its complexity to it. The reality is we have a demand for Vancouver. We hear that from people locally, and we hear that from people from around the world that want to come to the city because of how the city is viewed. And the city has a lot of great things going for it. Let's realize that. That is the truth. The other part of it is we're working with, say, a meeting planner who wants to bring a conference here. We talk to them about the the city, the city amenities, uh, areas where they need to be aware of, like any city, as you mentioned, uh, San Francisco, Seattle. 
and to try to do it with grace, try to do it with respect in terms of where people should go in areas that they should avoid um, uh, so that they feel safe. And it's, it's a tough thing to do, Sydney. We love this city. We love all aspects of the city, but it's a very tough thing to do to, to have to share words of concern with people so that make sure that when they're here that they have a good experience and that they're not surprised because that's the biggest thing that we, we hear. People come to Vancouver expecting what they hear, what they see, and then they land and they'll go into a part of the city and they're really surprised and wonder why is this happening. Right. I, I guess I'm curious about that too, Royce. Is like, I mean, this happens in every city, right? Maybe not all in one place the way we seem to have it here, but um, is it just because they have this image of Vancouver and Vancouver's a city just like any other? Uh, it is a city like any other, and it isn't a city like any other. And, and you know, it's hard for me to say that because I lived here. I was born here. I grew up here. I went down to Gastown as a kid. Yeah. Um, and so I'll have a see. I'll see it in a certain light. But when I talk to international visitors or I talk to international clients who see Vancouver from afar, uh, often they will say, you know, don't tell anybody that Vancouver is my favorite city to visit. And they love it because of where it's situated. They love it because of what it has to offer. They love it because of the restaurant scene, the outdoors, uh, the array of businesses where it's situated. There is a magic about the city that's a little different than many others. Is there, that's so true. Is there a way, though, to message, to change the messaging to, to reflect, you know, what is going on? I mean, it's going on everywhere. Or do you just, hey, continue to focus on the positives? We absolutely focus on the positives, for sure, and there are many. Let's not forget that. But in terms of uh, folks that are disadvantaged and, and the, the challenges that we're having with that, we message that with our uh, partners and with our operators with grace. Throwing shade at the police, throwing shade at city council and others is, is not constructive. It's not helpful. So let's try to do it with grace in the area that we're responsible for, and that's to try to rebuild a visitor economy out of a very tough two and a half years and ongoing challenges Let's try to rebuild that and get people working again to get people having a great experience in Vancouver because it is a great experience. Yeah, Royce, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me, Sonia. I appreciate it. That's Royce Twin, who's the president and CEO of Destination Vancouver, talking about the story that's you know been around the last couple of days, saying that, oh, Vancouver is getting bad reviews on some of these websites because of the homeless problem, because of the discussion about crime that's going on. But you know, my argument with that is, hey, we're dealing with things that it seems like every major city in North America right now is also dealing with. And, you know, of course, we're going to have a lot of these same issues. I have been on vacation years ago in San Francisco and, and seen that, yes, they also have, you know, a lot of people who are homeless. They need to deal with that. They have high house prices, too. So I don't know. How do you how do you deal with that? How do you tell people, hey, we're a city like any other, but there's lots of things to do and to see here or do people just take those reviews and go, well, I didn't think that was happening, therefore I'm not going to go there. I think that's a little bit naive, right? This is a city just like any other. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. But of course, the question is, what is the city of Vancouver going to do with that situation? In particular, I'm talking about the tent city situation along Hastings there. Vancouver Fire Chief has said this is unsafe. This These tents have to go. They have to find something else. City of Vancouver let it get to this point where there's so many tents down there. So to focus on that right now is what are they going to do about that situation? That is the question. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. 
We have been talking for the last couple of weeks about the challenges in finding a family doctor. Hundreds of thousands of BC residents have been going through this. Many of those people are seniors. And so we thought it also worthwhile to ask the question, well, wait a minute, has it always been this hard for seniors to get a doctor or is this a more recent development? For more on that, we're joined now by our Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Hey, Simi. Yeah, I thought we should ask BC seniors advocate Isabel McKenzie because she's been in the field for a long time. This is a big issue for them. And she told me actually eight years ago, she was starting to see seniors in rural areas of our province say that they couldn't access family doctors sometimes, but that was only sometimes. Then that increased to many people saying they couldn't access a family doctor. And she says now it's a city problem too, which we're well aware of. And she said it's everywhere for seniors in BC. And Isabel used to work actually in medical policy and they tried to fix the issue of taking on senior patients with an adjustment to pay. One of the things we wrestled with back then was uh, doctors not wanting to uh, take on complex care uh, patients. Again, the fee code system didn't compensate you for the conversations, et cetera. So we provided a monetary incentive to physicians to take on these complex care clients. So if you took on a, a complex care client, you got an additional amount of money that you wouldn't get for example, for I'm assuming myself, I'm not a complicated uh, patient. Um, and that worked to some extent. And then I was surprised to uh, read in this past weekend the um, travails of a family physician who was retiring and trying to find placement for his patients. And he could find placement for the complex patients who came with this additional funding but not the other patients, interestingly enough. So, you know, I've seen this arc over the last 30 years. And 30 years ago, we complained about the fee-for-service uh, model because we had too many doctors and they were making too much money. Now we complain about the same fee-for-service structure because we don't have enough doctors and they're not making enough money, but it's the same structure. So, you know, we have to be careful about defaulting to these, oh, it's a you know fee-for-service. Well, no, because lots of things work on a fee-for-service basis. The question is, what are the fees and what are the incentives behind the fees, right, to, to get the doctors to take on these patients? But I think of greatest concern is the problem of today, the impact isn't felt until months or years down the road. So these seniors who are without doctors now, you're hearing their stories, you, they call into your radio station, they write letters to the newspaper, etc. But what a lot of the decisions are made on, the data, it lags behind. And so we have not yet, frankly, felt the impact yet of the months and years of these people without uh, the physician monitoring and support that they need. We have not yet begun to feel what's coming down the road in terms of uh, hospitalizations, emergency visits, pressures, increased unnecessary, I would argue, pressures on long-term care because people can't access that physician support in the community. And we're not talking about in the last months of a person's life. We're talking about you know, a good 10, 15 years of otherwise good life, but 
requires physician oversight. And so the question is, how much of those 10, 15, 20, even 25 years of good life are being compromised because things that could be remedied, you know, uh, cancer is a good example. It, it will be three or four years from now that we'll see the impact in our rates from the fact somebody can't get into their doctor today. So that's something that, like, I know I think we're all very apprehensive about too, Raji, though, but this is still an ongoing discussion. I feel like they're talking about a complete overhaul that's still going to take some time for us to feel the impact of that. Yeah, yeah. And we are already seeing, right, that people are going to the emergency room for non-emergencies. You know, I live in North Vancouver. There's an older population there. And I have talked to ER doctors at Lionsgate Hospital there, and they tell me we are overburdened with seniors who come to emergency about an issue that they actually should have uh, seen their family doctor about six months to a year ago. They didn't because they didn't have one. And then the problem got worse. We're going to start to see a lot more of that, I think. Yeah, I th- I think so too. But I think that's been happening all along. I mean, I had so many emails in our discussion in the last couple of weeks from people saying that, yeah, I'm just not going to go. Like, it's too much trouble. I'm not going to go. And and then that's how we're ending up to put a strain on the system. And for seniors, it must be so much more stressful. Yeah. And Isabel McKenzie said that in order for things to change, we got to move beyond this like very piecemeal kind of incremental changes that we're making all over the place. But instead, we need to just we need to address it in a holistic, significant way. She talked about how financial incentives do work. And I think some of us don't want to believe that financial incentives will work to attract more doctors because we're thinking, oh, they should get into this business because of, you know, altruism. But at the end of the day, they are people who are trying to make a living as well. Um, And they've put a lot of training and years into becoming a doctor and they want to get compensated for that, right? Right. But also, also didn't we we say that financial mm -hmm. incentives don't always work because they just tried that, right? They tried to do that and nobody took them up on the offer. Yeah, they don't work for everybody across the board, that's for sure. Um, But also we have seen, interestingly, over the pandemic, ways that we can embrace innovation. I know a lot of people enjoyed doing telehealth uh, with doctors, um, also doing virtual appointments, medical appointments virtually. And yesterday you had a guest on to talk about uh, getting pharmacies involved, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe the pharmacist could prescribe medication. And and that's like another tiny thing that could, like it's a pillar that could possibly work in alleviating some of the need for a family doctor. But I think, Simi, in the end, we need more doctors, just period. We need the province to like collaborate with the colleges to change the requirements for foreign doctors to work here. We need to upgrade that training uh, quicker. We need to also involve nurse practitioners. In our province, we've long done this kind of gatekeeping thing with a doctor's responsibilities. But some of that could be offloaded to nurse practitioners, I think. Oh, we'll see about that. I'm sure the, all of these things are under discussion right now. But Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. You know, here in BC at this time of year in particular, we pay close attention to these salmon runs. What are the numbers? How are they looking? Well, there are some reasons to feel positive about that. And for more on that, we're joined now by Bob Chamberlain, who's the chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. Bob, thanks for being back with us. 
Uh, good morning, Sumi. Thank you for having me. So how are we feeling about the salmon runs this year? Well, when I think about the Broughton Archipelago, we're seeing some uh, early signs of good return to a river system that was on the verge of extinction. And a couple of years ago, uh, when we implemented the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People with Premier Horgan's government, we removed or began the transition of fish farms from our territory. And the two that we were most concerned with at that time were the ones that were close to Bond Sound. Uh, we had 200 fish returning there a couple years ago, and now we're looking at several thousand. So it's a good, good beginning. Wow. Okay, that's a big difference. So can you tell me about the process then, about like the life cycle here, why we think things are looking the way that they are? Well, pink salmon return every two years, unlike sockeye that return every four years. So it was a, a short window where we could examine the benefits of removing these fish farms from the key locations. And of course, if we're seeing this kind of a return, and there's still a, a ways to go to rebuild these to healthy and abundancy, but certainly it, it lends to the argument and strengthens our resolve that fish farms on migration routes of salmon, uh, in particular the, the Discovery Islands, are ones that need to be removed, and also all the fish farms on the east coast of Vancouver Island. Right. There seem to be some positive news about sockeye runs as well and pink runs in different parts of the province. Like, is this just going to be one of those years where we perhaps get good news about salmon? Well, when I think about the good returns that are being experienced in in a few of the salmon runs across British Columbia, um, it doesn't erase the memory of successive years of historic low returns. Uh, to the Fraser River. And I know that in terms of wanting and seeing healthy and abundant salmon runs, wild fluctuations are not a sign of stability. They're a sign of a problem that needs to be addressed. And I think, you know, for far too long, perhaps the federal government and the provincial governments have taken the resiliency of, of salmon for granted and believing that mitigation is going to be okay when other industries are involved. But it's time that we take a serious look at all of the stressors and impacts to salmon and start removing them. Right. So you're saying like, and if it's a good year like this, do we get, do we start to think that what we're doing is working? Well, I think we need to enjoy when we have good, uh, decent returns in a few rivers. And I have to underline that a few rivers. There are so many river systems found on the Fraser that are hurting. I think about the, the early Stewart run way up in the Carrier Second uh, People's Territories where it has been, you know, almost on extinction for, and on, definitely on life support for far too long. And it's those kinds of runs that need the attention um, and not so much attention paid to the odd run that is turn, returning in, in decent numbers. Yeah, clearly decent numbers. I was taking a look at some of these reports here. I mean, they're saying some of them are double what the Department of Fisheries and Oceans had been estimating. The Skeena was showing um, returns of 50% higher than estimates. So, Bob, what do we need to keep in mind when we see these kinds of numbers? Well, for me, I think it's it's not a, a battle won. It's, a, it's an instance where we can enjoy the abundancy. But when we take a look at the entire salmon runs across British Columbia, and we have to be mindful of that because it's it's not only an Aboriginal right to food or our culture and traditions, but everyone that catches salmon is the same thing. But what I think about is the contribution to the environment, to uh, you know all the animals that, that we see as iconic in British Columbia, they all need salmon to survive. How important is it that there's going to be potentially a pretty good pink salmon run? in that Broughton well, Archipelago area? Well, it's, it's great news for us in our homelands. 
because when we were seeing uh, returns of 200 salmon to a river, that is the verge of extinction. And we want to have good, abundant runs. We have to have a strong genetic diversity to ensure that there is going to be able to perpetuate across the region. So we're happy to see some benefit of, of, of a higher return, but we have to be mindful that these river systems can hold tens of thousands, not just a few thousand. So it's a beginning. So does that mean an increase in harvesting numbers? Well, there hasn't been a commercial fishery, if, if that's the measure of the question, because there, the last commercial fishery I was aware of in the mainland area uh, was back in, I like to say, the 1900s, but it was like <laughs> 1992, 1993. But you know what? I think about it, you know, what are the things I've learned, um, like what I'm hearing today about the Coquitlam River and, and, you know, excavators operating in the river system where salmon are going by, these are the kinds of examples that we must stop we must start paying the utmost respect to the needs of the salmon because they contribute so much to this province. And I don't just mean economically. All right. So then looking ahead, then how are you cautiously optimistic for the next little while? Well, I will be more optimistic once I see the outcome of the fish farm transition planning process that the DFO is currently undertaking because they've opened it up to interior first nations as they have Aboriginal rights to fish, and they're constitutionally protected, and the government is now embracing the Supreme Court law by allowing them to have a voice in the transition plan. Because when you look at the what's happening with DFO here in the Pacific, they have the Canadian Science Advisory Secretary, and they have nine science papers that tells us, don't worry, everything's okay. But when you have scientists that were involved in that process from the Pacific Salmon Foundation, University of British Columbia, testifying at the Standing Fisheries and Oceans Committee that the, the process is a sham, that it's heavily industry influenced. For me, that tells me that we have no reason to believe the science on fish farms in relationship to the impacts and stressors it represents to wild salmon. All right. So even if there is a good year then this year, Bob, is that like we should keep that in mind? That doesn't erase anything. That just means we need to keep studying this situation. I think we've done a lot of studying, we've done a lot of planning, and what we need is a very uh, a significant resource investment for habitat restoration. We need to examine all the impacts that are, are being licensed by federal and provincial governments and start to change them to respect wild salmon. We have a precautionary principle, um, which is not being fulsomely embraced here in British Columbia, and that precautionary principle, you know, I was quite surprised in the Discovery Islands consultation process to learn that there is no fish farm policy in terms of the precautionary principle. And it's supposed to be there to err on the side of caution for wild salmon in the environment. And the DFO does not have that on the books. So there is no thou shall to that industry. But, you know, I hope you do. And I just think it's not good enough. Well, I just always wonder, every year we seem to be surprised, right, when the estimates are, are different or when the result is different from what the estimates were. But we seem to, it seems like a rite of passage here in B.C. Bob, thank you for your time on that this morning. Thank you, Sammy. Have a great day. You too. That's Bob Chamberlain, who's the chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance, uh, taking a look at different runs around the province. I mean, we were talking about pink salmon returning in larger than expected numbers in the Broughton Archipelago. But when you talk about sockeye, they're seeing the same thing along the Skeena River run. They're saying they're pretty big numbers uh, in pretty much all of these important runs so far. They're hoping those numbers hold, but we'll see what happens. It could just be 
one of those years. But what does that mean for you, for people who can go out and fish? That is what we wait to find out. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.